Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my patrons. Pun, Matthew, Garrett, Jeff, Tavernot, Paul, Carol, Fernando, Jeff, Justin, and Matt. Thank you all so much for your support. You helped make this show possible. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on my upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my episode notes, my link tree, or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number two DM. One more quick announcement. I have a few friends in the podcasting world, like Bombarded, who donate a percentage of their ad and patron money to good local causes, so I've decided to follow suit. As of January 2022, 10% of the money I bring in from ads and supporters like you will be donated to Encircle, a nonprofit organization with the mission to bring the family and community together to enable LGBTQ youth to thrive. To learn more about Encircle, check out my link tree. And now, onto this episode's guest announcement. Lex has been playing around with game design for about as long as they have been playing TTRPGs. An interest in customization has blossomed into a full hobby and more. Lex is coming off hosting their first successful game jam using their very own game SRD, Caltrop Core, a simple system using D4s made to help people create their first TTRPG. Enjoy! I'm Lex, I'm Titanomachy RPG on Twitter and on itch. I write uh, indie TTRPGs and wacky 5e subclasses. Came out with a SRD to make your own TTRPGs and that has sort of been taking off and it's good to be here. Uh, I started in TTRPGs with uh, 5e. I played one session of 3.5 in college, visiting a friend's place for spring break, played a sorcerer, cast fireball it was awesome and then didn't play again for many many years until about like 2018 my younger brother picked up the 5e starter kit and we had no idea what we were doing we were just messing around i started listening to the adventure zone balance and thought to myself after like a couple months like oh i could do this so i started dming after we had been playing for just about six months and i homebrewed this whole thing i had no idea what i was doing but it was really fun. We played in person before the Panini, and my brother had all his like Warhammer terrain and, and minis and stuff, so we were using that on a hex grid, and it was just really fun. And we just sort of kind of snowballed from there, and yeah, it kind of happened so fast, but I, I approached, the first thing I started to do was just tinkering with classes and, and stories and stuff, so anytime I approach something new, I'm like, oh, let me try it my way. Let's see if I can learn anything from doing it this way. And if it's wrong, if it doesn't work, then I, I learned something. And if it does work, then I made something cool. So you're kind of a tinkerer by nature. It's, it's what you do throughout everything you do, not just games like this then. Yeah, it just, I'm always like, let me try something. I, I just always like, I learned by doing really. So learning by mm -hmm. like, I just, it's hard for me to, I'd rather learn on the job than learn, like read it up or like feel, try to feel prepared before doing something. I would rather just fail fast. That's a term in like a catchphrase in like marketing and business and stuff. And I, I personally, that's the way I like to do things. I know it's not for everyone. 
Yeah, not for the faint of heart. It's true. So you started kind of playing around with stuff. You started playing around with subclasses and that kind of thing. How did you get into running the game? And do you remember your first game and kind of how it went? Yeah, so I remember I had come up with a bunch of cool stuff. I was sort of inspired by a little bit of Black Clover that I like started reading at the time. And I was putting in my own custom abilities for my players and my own custom setting because I, I, I come from a writing background, actually. I did my undergrad in creative writing. So I actually there's a ton of poetry of mine out on the internet in, in journals and in, in physical journals as well. And that's where I come from. So uh, writing just is part of what I do all the time. So I was like, let me write a cool story. We can mean something. I can, we can like tell a cool story together. The first session, I remember I had all these plans. And of course, the first time you ever DM or GM a game, there's a moment where you realize you cannot predict what your players are going to do ever. And it's cool to plan, but you got to plan a different way. So yes, we, yes. I was doing the first session thing of trying to get everybody together into one group. These days, I like to just have people decide that they're group before we start because it's a lot easier that way. But at the time, I was like, mm-hmm. let's have indi- individual scenes for each person and we'll get them all together eventually. So I had plotted it out how I thought it was going to happen. And so my younger brother's playing a barbarian. My friend is playing a rogue. The rogue goes to pickpocket the barbarian. They get into a, a scuffle like I'm, I'm predicting they would. I'm predicting that they fight for at least a round so that another player can swoop in and stop it. First thing the rogue does is run away. First thing is, this barbarian's mad at me. I'm out of here. I was like, oh, okay. That, that was such a, like, a, a, I figured it out on the spot, but that sort of changed everything about what I thought DMing was and realizing it's so different from writing fiction or poetry or any of those where you kind of get to dictate everything. It's you're playing with other people. It doesn't matter how well you know your friends because th- this was literally my younger brother, my best friend, my other best friend. They're married, and one of our really cool friends from a, a barcade that we would frequent at the time. And so I knew everybody pretty well, really, really well. But you just you can't predict everybody's every moment, and it's not fun to. These days, when I run a game, I don't run D and D that often anymore. But when I do, it's like here's some obstacles. Y'all can figure out how you want to approach it. I want to be surprised. Being surprised is, for me, is the most fun part of being a GM and having to react to that. I enjoy that sort of adaptation on the fly. So then I realized, oh, I don't actually don't have to spend all this time prepping. Even though I did really love prep, I, I would enjoy hours of prep I would do for each session. But it's just not, it's not feasible. It's, it's, it's not sustainable for me anyway. I know a lot of people love that and they get really detailed in their plans. It was me for a while. And then I realized, actually... It'll be fun to just, I don't have to be so prepared for everything. That's funny that you say your favorite part is being surprised because honestly, I don't know if it's my favorite part, but I know exactly what you're talking about. That moment where they come up with something totally out of left field that you had no way of predicting. And it's really awesome. (laughs) It is one of the most fun parts about running games for me too. So, but I guess I've just never heard it put into words like that. (laughs) So in your time running games, what have been some of the big mistakes you feel like you've made that other people could learn from? So the biggest one for sure was all that I did a lot of tinkering before I knew anything about the system. So I ended up homebrewing essentially just, I had them choose classes, but then I was giving them additional subclass abilities instead of their whatever subclass they were were going to choose. Mm -hmm. And I gave them some really 
OP stuff. And it, it's fine because like the way I like to do stories is I like to have, I don't really run a lot of monsters. I run a lot of like people being the villain or that sort of thing. So the powers are, are granted to the other people, other side as well. Just not, I don't scale it up as much, but there was still other stuff. There was anti-magic stuff going on. It was fun and it ended up, you know, we still have to finish it, but we were doing pretty good. My players are like level seven now. It, it worked out, but I would caution if you choose one, choose homebrew subclasses or homebrew story. And in fact, if it's your first one, I think the story is the easiest one to make up because that's everybody does that. And you don't have to stick to any script for the story. You can just listen to your players and it's actually is going to be such a fun time for you and your table. You're probably right. And this is a mistake I've made too. So it does make a lot of sense to like homebrew the narrative stuff first because you're bound to give them something that's way too powerful and then it, it could break the rest of the game um and like you said you know you as as a person running the game you can then scale up the enemies so that they're on equal footing or close to equal footing to keep it interesting but it can just run away from you quickly if you're uh, handing out too much too quickly so definitely something to learn from any any others to add or is that kind of the main one that's sort of the big one that the more I think about it, looking back, the more distance I have from it. I'm like, essentially what I did was basically made like a, D, a 5e hack for my table because yeah. it ended up being, okay, so the, the dice are all a similar system, all this, but it's not any story from Wizards of the Coast. And the, the classes are fully just off, totally not at all how classes are structured in 5e anymore. So Looking back, it was kind of cool, and when I go back to it, we're gonna. I, I do want to finish that campaign. The pandemic sort of interrupted that, but I can't even say don't do it. It's like maybe try the homebrewing the narrative first, and then giving the other stuff a shot. If anybody ever wants to try something, I'm always all for it. But if you're a little nervous, I would probably start with the narrative side first, and then there's so much great third party subclasses out on the internet as well now. That true, true. You could probably find something that is up what you want, but created by someone who thought about it a lot and has experience with the game. And you can always come back later and do it your way. But there's a lot of great indie creators online that would love to have you play their subclass. Including some of your own. And uh, we can chat about those <laughs> in a bit. But yeah, as far as memories running the game that are some of your favorite what comes to mind? What are some moments from your table or from your game groups that have really stuck with you just for how fun and interesting and exciting they were? So the first one is still in this campaign with the everything's homebrewed and overpowered. But I remember specifically that the world was not magical before the campaign started and then magic enters the world that the first session. And so they all are hanging out at the, at the monk's monastery and the monk is, they're all like sort of taking care of the kids and the rogue wants to use the children, the orphans as like an information network across the city so that you can get, they can get like a whisper network going. And, you know, people usually talk freely around kids because, you know, they don't think kids are a threat or whatever. So he was like, oh, I want to do like essentially like CIA, but with children, uh, with these, these kids that they're taking care of. And so all these people were getting these magic powers, including the party. They wanted to know who else in the in the city had magical powers. And one of the kids, and this was like an off the, just a, like a random line that I was like, oh, let me just interject this. One of the kids displays like a teleportation power that this rogue also has. 
the whole story changes at that moment because all the players together decide, okay, we need to go find all the other magic orphans throughout the city at the other monasteries, bring them here, and then we can train them and we'll have basically My Hero Academia in, in the D&D campaign. And so that whole session was them going to the different monasteries, collecting the magic kids. I gave each of them two for them to like talk to and, and train. Like every time they would have a scene with the kid that they were training them, they could roll like one of the stats. And so they did like a 46 drop the lowest and write it down. And only one person got there before we had to take a break. Once you had six stats, then your child was a level one character that you could bring with you, do whatever you want, but they would have their own stats after all the training that you did with them. And then like the whole main plot became about the bad guys trying to get the magic orphans and rescuing these people, these kids from like, there was once like a, so my brother's is, is, if you can believe it, more chaotic than I am in some ways. And he took the kid, he took one of his kids out training. And there's, you know, that point where you're like, are you sure you want to do this? Do you want to let the per giant piranha plant like thing swallow your child that you're training? And he's like, yeah. And eventually he cuts the kid out of the, the plant's stomach, but the kid flies away. And then they have to go get the kid. The kid got picked up by a black market. And so they had to go rescue the kid from it. It ended up being a really cool moment. But the whole main plot became about this inner, like, city politics like there's different factions but it's all centered around these magic orphans and, and magic children throughout the city because that's you know the bad guys we're going to try to take them and, and do uh you know either train them or sell them whatever it is and so it was really cool to see because i i had had an end game in mind for the i had like what the villain is is going to do in mind and that was still working they didn't they couldn't deal right derailed that not that i would have minded if they did but that was sort of like the stuff that i had in mind but I didn't really have any connective tissue. I didn't know how we were going to get from where we are to the end that I, or like at least the end game story that I had in mind, but they filled it in. They filled it in with this totally spur of the moment. I just said one line of like the kid teleporting and they're like, we got to get these kids. And so it really became a, a wonderful heartfelt thing, training these kids and protecting them from these evil forces, making sure that the immediate plans of the villain were being thwarted. Uh, all while other magical ruins and stuff is happening in the background. Yeah, that that sounds like a ton of fun. And I love stories like that that have a bunch of crazy moving parts. You know, my own campaigns, I I just like keep throwing stuff at my players and, and they have to decide what's important to work on and what isn't. And so it sounds like you've given mm -hmm. them a lot of interesting puzzles to solve. It's interesting going from that to games that I run now, which is mostly like playtests for games that I've written. Mm -hmm. And so Nighthawks, I, I had a couple of playtests and Nighthawks is a game about loneliness. You don't have stats, you, have, you just like get tokens and it's about the cost and benefit of trying to break out of your loneliness and break out of your isolation. So there's certain mechanics that reflect there is risk, but there's also a lot of reward. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the painting of the same name, Nighthawks by Edward Hopper, which is the one where ever the, the, there's the three people in the diner or four people in the diner, and it's about isolation. And in the rules I write, look, the diner is just the name of the setting of where you choose for this to take place. It doesn't have to be a literal diner. Right. It's, it's this. I have tags for people to choose from of like, oh, let's give the diner, you know, this tag where it's hurtling through space or something like that. Both playtest groups were like, no, it has to be a, in a diner. And actually, at the end, we're all going to die. Uh, because <laughs> I was like, that's not, you don't have to die at the end. You can, I think they they tried to escape the, there's a submarine one where, or like a, 
the diner was was jettisoned off like an underwater lab and was sinking to the bottom of an alien ocean. And I think at the end they get out and try to go, but like everyone apparently is insisting, I can't be vulnerable, even in character, unless we're going to die at the end. <laughs> and it has to be a diner. It has to be a diner. I'm going to run it again. Uh, by the time this comes out, it'll it'll already have happened. But for Play Nerd Allies, yep. we have a charity stream on Saturday, all Culture Core games, and I'll be running Nighthawks in the first slot. And I'm really curious to see if the players also <laughs> insist on it being a, an actual diner, or at least like the diner aesthetics. So like, it's a diner, an old 50s diner, but that's the decor in the space station uh cafeteria and so they're like get jettisoned off or whatever i'm like doesn't have to be a but like it's so funny what players like latch on to i get it because now that i'm playing in more games i'm always latching on to like just the most irrelevant things whatsoever like for example we're we're i'm playing in a fat magic play test mm -hmm. which is the D, &D uh setting uh, for 5e with all the food and stuff shout out shane uh we had to go rescue like a no-name mpc named hollandaise just like obviously not a no-name but like a very minor mpc named hollandaise Shane had forgotten the notes, so he made up some details about this person. So it was like a, a pink fear bulb and a cowboy hat and a crop top, pink crop top that says Babe Hunter on it. <laughs> and we all were like, I would die for Babe Hunter. I would die for Hollandaise. And we were like in the middle of assassinating a bunch of, of bad uh, folks. I don't want to spoil anything, but in the middle of assassinating really bad people and in the middle of it, my character, who's a 13-year-old half-orc Azamar, it's like, I had to go see Hollandaise because I need to see if, if they have an extra Babe Hunter crop top because I want one. And I stopped. And I was like, that's what I'm doing with my my downtime. Or like, that's what I'm doing right now. I need to go get this thing. So I get why players latch on to stuff like minor details. Uh, but that's the sort of thing where now Babe Hunters is like a joke in our group. Now we call ourselves the Babe Hunters. And it's just like a fun... Shane even got art commissioned of Hollandaise, who he had no plans of commissioning art for this person. But because we were so excited about Hollandaise and the Babe Hunter crop top and the, and the cowboy hat, it's like, all right, I guess we're getting some art made for the book. <laughs> uh, and, and they'll be immortalized forever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as your influences running games who do you feel like you t have taken the most from uh, and it could be personal examples of people you've watched you know run games a lot or it could be examples of really big celebrities that anything you know in between those two so when i was first starting out i was listening to the adventure zone so everything i really knew about running a, a game was from Griffin McElroy, but then I started watching a bunch of different interview shows and and podcasts about running games and B. Dave Walters. I watched, you know, I've, I've watched him talk about games. His one on one shot with Brendan Lee Mulligan is a great episode. They dole out tons of wisdom. After Griffin, I started watching Dimension Twenty, and so Brendan really became one of my guiding stars for how, not exactly how I want to run my games, but what kinds of skills I can learn from him. And what, let's just take it one at a time, you know? At first, I was pretty nervous about doing voices. And even in my, I still don't do a lot of character voices for my own PCs even. But watching Brennan, I was like, oh, let me just try a little bit of voices. I'd, obviously, he's incredible. He's so talented. And he's done this for a long time. I don't need to know how to do a Scottish accent <laughs> uh, and all this stuff. Yeah. But I can, I can figure some stuff out. I can do, let me just like pick this up and, and give it a shot. Do it at like, if Brennan's at a 10, let me do this at a two and then see how that feels. And we'll just keep pushing from there. I'm like super down to try stuff. And even though I was self-conscious about doing voices, I was like, I can just try this. I know my friends, like in my brain, I know my friends aren't going to make fun of me or anything. 
you know, it is sort of in the moment. It's hard to like, if you're not ready to, to do a voice and I'm not a voice actor or anything, it's hard to like just put on a goblin voice or put on a random NPC voice that you weren't expecting. But I also really appreciated how Brennan almost always, I think this is where I picked up, was like always, always found a way to say yes to the players. Mm. That's a really big part of my GMing style is I hardly ever say no, almost never, because there's usually a way to make it work in the mechanics, regardless of the system. Obviously, if it's rules light, you can do whatever you want. In 5e, you can still like, there's a lot of room for just making your own calls. And, you know, I'm definitely on the side of rule of cool. I'm definitely, oh, that sounds freaking awesome. Here's the role you'll have to make for it. And let's see what happens. You can just come up with a role for it. It's, it's not hard to say yes to your players and your players are going to have such awesome ideas just by virtue of you're one person and they're more than one person usually. It's usually, you know, three to six players at the table. And yeah, the hive mind's going to come up with some awesome stuff and you should say yes to it. See what happens. I, I've done little one shots here and there for other people in the community, like Cast Eye Podcast and Mayday Roleplay. Mm. You get players like that together, they're going to mess with your business. And they're so smart and their, their role play is always so good. Like it's just, it's a delight. And so you might as well say yes because you can have so much fun, especially if you have like new players, especially have such a great brain for what's possible. They don't know what's, what's like not possible and not okay to ask for. So they'll have the best ideas. And then you want the newest players and then veteran players all have like the wildest ideas. I, I love both groups because they can bring such freshness to a game. Yeah, they can. So you mentioned earlier, you kind of started hacking together subclasses and stuff basically right away as you were running your first game. Talk us through kind of the process or the genesis of hacking together some subclasses for your players to what you do now, which is, you know, writing games and designing supplements and, and all sorts of uh, different game design stuff. I started with really just giving them a new ability that I thought they would like every level. And it wasn't even from existing subclasses. It was like, I know these people really well. I know what they would like to do in a game. Here, let me come up with a mechanic whole cloth. But I was giving it to them every level. So then it, was, it just became a lot of stuff. <laughs> but... It slowly turned into, it was actually during the election, uh, the American election at the end of, what is it, 2020, 2019. I was really stressed about Mr. The, that guy winning again, maybe. Yeah. So I was distracting myself. And I remember thinking, oh, it would be cool to like make a, a silencer rogue. You know, like that would be cool. That doesn't really exist in the game yet. Let me try to make something. Uh, I wrote the subclass. I just had so much fun and it totally took my mind off of things. That subclass is still pretty solid, actually. Made another one, uh, The Way of the Falling Star Monk, which is out in a couple of collections now. And that one's still like, I look back on that one, I was like, I was still so new to subclass design that I was coming up with stuff that really isn't in the vein of what 5e usually does. Like I was having mechanics for like, if you roll a 20 plus on your attack, you can do this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Or you can like spend a key point to do this thing. If you roll over 25, you can do another thing. I looked back after doing uh, several months of, of subclasses and I was like, that's actually really cool. Like that holds up. That's sort of why I think everybody should try to make what they want to make. Like you don't have to worry about it being bad. It might actually be good. Even if it's bad, no one has to see it. <laughs> you can just make another thing. Or if you do show people, okay, they say it's bad and then... <laughs> nothing yeah. like they're like okay that's fine uh if they're your friends they probably won't tell you that it's bad they'll just be like hey why don't you work on this part of it or like i have questions about this part but i'm a big proponent of people just trying things 
And so I, I, I started with the subclasses. I was doing a lot of that. I started this Twitter account in January of, of last year, and I was putting out subclasses there as well after a while. I was still trying to find my, what I wanted to do on TTRPG Twitter, because originally I was going to do an actual play show with friends on, on my Twitch, because I'd start streaming over the pandemic. I was like, oh, we can do a fun, light thing since we can't get together in person. We did get it started, but it kind of fizzled out because it's it's a lot. And streaming is also a lot. Like your favorite streamers, D&D, TTRPG streamers, like running a game and running a stream, if they don't have like a dedicated producer, that's so much work. And those people are incredible. You should absolutely be appreciative of any creators that you know who are not only running games, but also producing games at the same time. It's tough and streaming is can be really draining. It is not as easy as like as I thought it was, at least. Maybe you everybody knows how hard it is, but I at the time didn't know. Yeah. So and it really wasn't where my my passion was in. I, I like I'm more of an introvert, so I like working alone and, and I was just making a bunch of cool stuff. I remember just I, I think Beach Episode was my first like proper game that I made because we were just chatting on on Twitter about something. Someone was just like, I want to play a chill game with friends about whatever little like vacation thing and we'll like chase veggie bandits off of our our garden and stuff and i was like oh i can make a little idyllic something i've i've heard the adventure zone play monster of the week so i know that there's that 2d6 system out there so i was like let me use that that makes sense that's a cool mechanic and so it's sort of like a pbta like system and it was just like a one pager i was like i've heard people play lasers of feelings on these podcasts Mm -hmm. i've heard them play all these other like one page rpgs i was like i can do a one page rpg that's that's fine it was fine, but now that I look back, one-page RPGs are really hard. Yeah, uh, it's much easier to do like a ten-page RPG uh, <laughs> rather than try to like try to make a game so perfect that it can fit on one page, mm-hmm. and then also making the layout not look terrible, and then also you know it's it's a lot of work. But it is. I think if, you know do a three-page game. I think that's a great sweet spot for anyone. But I started doing that. I was just making little things here and there. The first part of how we got to where we are today, I guess, is I was talking to. Uh, Maps and Quests and uh, A Ghost of Eli on Twitter, because we're buds, shout out to them. We were talking about D4s and like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we just like did a D4 system? And Mappy was like, oh, you could do like a dice pool and, you know, the different numbers mean something, you know, different degrees of success, essentially. Like how it would basically be like Powered by the Apocalypse, but instead of three levels of success, you would have four. And that's not that much of a stretch from there, right? I was like, actually, that's really funny. They're like, oh, we could call it the Caltrip system because D4s are pointy and they, they hurt to step on. Like that, that, that's cool. I went to try and play with it and I realized, oh, I actually don't have any concrete mechanics to work from. So all I did, I, wor- I wrote down the four levels of success and those are the, still the same, the same exact wording that's now in the SRD of one is absolute failure. You don't get what you want and things get worse, a lot worse. Two, uh, you don't get what you want, but things don't get, like they stay the same. So you actually can be safe still on that one. Three is you get what you want, but then it gets complicated. So in some cases, three and two, depending on the situation, might one might be preferable to the other. Yeah. And then four is absolute success. You get what you want and more. I, I wrote that down. I sort of did it up in a nice little one page thing. Like, oh, people could, maybe people will want to see this. This is a funny joke we made. And at some point I changed it to Caltrip Core because the alliteration was more pleasing. And then people just started using it. I didn't really promote it that much. I posted it a couple places in, on a self-promo Saturday. And people, they just started running with it. Shout out to Aaron Voigt at Aaron's Excel on Twitter, who is officially the first officially published Culture Core game on Itch. You know, a person after my own heart just going for it and trying something. Because people were starting to use it, I was like, the train's leaving the station. I should get on the train and support the game. 
that's when I wrote the full SRD with like extra tips and tricks of what I've learned from, you know, I'm a brand new game designer as well. I, I think I released this in October and I had written my first game in like June. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know anything about this, but I know that I'm not afraid of being wrong and I'm not afraid of making something bad. So let me lay out some options for people, lay out a simple dice core, and then have like a little fill in the blank thing in the SRD, a little step-by-step guide of making your first game. People started using it right away. Then like some of the, the veteran game designers on the, on the scene, like Spencer Campbell from Gila RPGs and uh, Sean Drake and stuff, they're like, you should do a game jam. You should do a game jam. I was like, I've never done a game jam in my life. I've never even participated in one and you want me to run one? I was like, okay, well, if I hit, you know, if I hit 5K before the end of the year, then we'll do a game jam. I was like, that's might happen, but probably not. It happened. And so I'm like, all right, we'll do a really short one, like six days. And I think when we started the game jam, it was like maybe 10 games built on Caltrip Core, maybe like 10 to 15 or so. Up to that then, point, yeah. And then by the end of the game jam, people had submitted 92 games to the jam. And some people had, had submitted multiple. They were like, oh, I finished one. I'm going to do another one. Mm-hmm. Like, what? Ha- huh? And so now as of this recording, it's like 108 plus on itch, which is just absolutely mind blowing. You know how it is with creators when people like compliment what you made and you're like, oh, well, yeah, thank you. But you try to be humble and you try to like, sometimes you try to argue with them like, oh, it's not that great. I can't even argue because I wrote the SRD to help people make their first game or, or give people a boost for whoever wanted to make a game just to make one really easy, lower the barrier of entry pretty much to the floor so that anyone could do it. And it does that. It accomplish that goal in spades you know i can't argue with people who say how cool it is oh it got it got featured in Dicebreaker alongside lumen and stuff like it's been a wild few months of game design and i just started out doing 5e homebrew i my whole something i that is true of me is i often get bored of stuff and i've always tried to push to the next level and so i was like all right i've done dozens of these uh, 5e subclasses i'm kind of i'm not bored but just let me try my own game like I, i'm always just looking for the next challenge i guess mm-hmm. of tinkering around or really being a creative i guess you could you could say that yeah couple things uh as part of what you've been talking about number one you said it's really hard to make a, a one-page game and that's totally true i submitted a game for the game jam uh that you hosted and it was a ton of fun to write and i started off saying oh yeah this will be a one-page game no problem And then, you know, like the intro filled up one page and I said, okay, well, this isn't going to work. So it's funny how how arrogant you get and then how quickly humbled you are when you're like, it is really hard to explain to someone what you want them to do. Like you said, in one page, lay it out nicely, have it all make sense and like make sure that you've covered all of the bases that you wanted to. So, yeah, it, it is very hard. I think of like Rowan Rook and Descartes, you know, prolific one page game writers. And I just <laughs> wonder how they do it. It's it's incredible. So you mentioned the game jam. I did want to chat a little bit about that. So you kind of talked about that. Um, and yeah, I, I had been thinking about writing a game for maybe probably like mid-ish October. I, I had an idea and I was mm-hmm. like, this would be a fun one shot kind of game to write. But it's sitting down and thinking about the mechanics and how it's all going to make sense that takes a lot of time. And so I just never gave any time to it, right? Just because I was doing other stuff. And so I I had seen Caltrop Core games popping up here and there. And I thought that, you know, that could be what I want to do, but I want to think about some other things that I I might try first. And then you said, hey, we're going to do a game jam. And I said, all right, well, that's the sign then, you know, I just need to write this game. So like you said, it was six days. Uh, I think I spent 
two or three days writing it all, thinking about it all, kind of interspersed amongst those six days. And then I spent some time, like an hour or two on Canva, trying to make a, a cool poster for it, mm-hmm. right? And that was yeah. it. And uh, my game's based on uh, the book and the movie Holes, because I love Holes. I'm a millennial, so I, oh, you know, I have to love Holes. Holes, same. And so, yeah, it, it didn't really take that long to just take exactly what you'd written and make it into a holes game that's meant to be played in like a one shot you know really cinematic hey introduce the characters give them some mystery to solve you know at, at some labor slash juvenile detention camp and then see see where it takes you you know <laughs> so uh and then you carry zero up the mountain yeah exactly no i, I didn't include anything specific like that just because i felt like i didn't want to like put too right, much yeah. framework in there i just want people to kind of play around with it but yeah, I actually haven't played it yet, but we'll see. But you, when you were talking about Nighthawks and you said people were like, it's got to be this bar, but it could be, or this diner, but it could be in all of these different places. That was funny to me because I gave a bunch of examples of <laughs> like settings you could do and like, hey, it doesn't have to be digging holes in a desert. It could be chopping down giant trees, you know, for lumber, right. or it could be working in a factory or building a space station. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious if uh, people just prefer to go with the the tried and true digging holes in the desert and see where it (laughs) takes you. So that's pretty funny. Yeah. I'm curious to see if people play it again, like if the same people play it again, how they would choose. If I were playing it, I'd be like, oh yeah, we're, we're digging holes in the desert and there's poisonous lizards. And (laughs) right. Cause that's what you know. And it's like the thing you want to play. Like it's the, it's the same reason why, for instance, you designed some 5e hacks for avatar and smash bros and Pokemon. Like, You built those because that's what people want to do. And I get that. And, you know, I took the inspiration from Holes and knowing full well that, like, if I was to run a game, it's probably what I would do. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of Caltrop core games, is there one that's been your favorite slash if you don't have a favorite, what's one game that you've looked through that was really interesting or innovative that you want to talk about i'm like still working through all of them but there's yeah. a ton of great ones that i that i've already read one that comes to, i could talk about how all the awesome culture poor games I, I haven't even read all of them i could talk about this for forever yeah but there's one by kaya ray have a i think on twitter yeah from um, um twice bitten curse of strad yes mm-hmm. yes exactly she wrote this was she wrote hers after the jam actually she she released it and she made a sort of solo journaling RPG oh, out yeah. of Caltrip Core. And it's it's called Her Odyssey. Beautifully written game. I think it's really cool. I just never, I think I need to like work on, <laughs> go to more therapy and so I can sit down with myself and write us, <laughs> you know, you don't, do solo journal games. It's so true. Being alone with your thoughts, right? <laughs> Who wants to do that? <laughs> That's why I play with other people. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I feel that but so no, hard. seriously. <laughs> Oh, but seriously, uh, her Odyssey, excellent. It's really cool the way she incorporated the the dice mechanic, but also the journaling aspect and telling the story of this long journal uh, journey you go on and ways to influence the story and use the dice to sort of guide how you tell the story. And that one is really, really cool. There's I've got the the list in front of me now. Mm. For a Better World, Fit to Print by Justin Joyce is about you play journalists in a superhero world and it's like it's a full game. You know, there's a lot of these games are pretty short because it is a pretty light chassis. So everything that you make, if you want it to be longer, you have to add that. Yep. 
but this one's like a good at least 40 pages or so and it's a oh, solid wow. game yeah about you know telling the stories and, and telling the stories of these superheroes in this world and, and all sorts of shenanigans that go on with that and it's it's really cool i i got a shout out maps and quest who is probably has a record for most caltrip core yeah, games what, written, written like 10 pumps so those things out it's something bananas <laughs> like that. So he makes super rules like games for you can anybody can pick them up and play. They're all like different genres of stuff. Those are really great. Mm-hmm. Someone even made a fan game of Ghost Files, like the the BuzzFeed Supernatural Boys, the Ghoul Boys, their new show. Someone made a, a, a fan game of that. I'm trying to think off the top of my head because there's some really oh Hyperion was was one that's they're gonna run it on Saturday for the charity stream. Comes with music for the game. Incredibly cool stuff. Wow. Uh, Vigilant by Ill Advised Gaming is a is a love letter to Bloodborne, built on Caltrop Core. Um, someone made a a game about the thing called the warmest place to hide. Anything you could possibly want uh, to play are here. There's so many awesome games. Uh, Bogus Cheesecake made Beachcombers, which is like a fun, relaxing game as well, similar to like a beach episode type of thing. Yep. Uh, oh, I got a shout out Dethrone by uh, Shane, again, from Fat Magic RPG. Dethrone is a beautiful game about building heaven and tearing it down. Got like, everybody did such a cool, cool thing. I don't know if you know uh, Werewolf BF Artie, uh, Werewolf Wells, uh, made a game about ordering pizza and like playing a game about, like I think, while you're ordering pizza as well, like while you're doing that. It's absolutely incredible what you can do when you believe in yourself, right? Like, I didn't come up with any of these ideas. I said, hey, if you roll a D4 and one, two, three, four means something, what can you make out of that? And everyone went, we're going to make the coolest freaking stuff ever. There's, I I could go on and on. Someone made Winnie the Pooh inspired oh, right. game. because it just entered public domain that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep. so the hundred acres look that up there's that's um, so funny just there's Yu-Gi-Oh! the ttrpg yeah, i'm I looking at seeing like, that one so um, many i'll make sure to link these all in ish so anybody can go check them out yeah the trash pals seems really cool too the design on trash pals is just yes beautiful so good. it's a beautifully laid out game uh, that's one thing though, where i'm like i really have no idea on graphic design and so i'm slowly learning i'm i'm sort of just watching abyssal bruise shout out matt from abyssal bruise and sort of picking up little tips here and there Mm -hmm. slowly but surely uh, improving my my graphic design skills but yeah trash pals is on this list dethrone her odyssey mystic pizza oracle god kiss which is another is a is a rules like god killing simulator by dognut boy eli from made a roleplay made we like tote goblins soul made burnout which is a game about getting off a ttrpg twitter and like just like taking care of yourself for a moment <laughs> it's it's like sort of a, you know there's like a tongue-in-cheek thing but it's actually you know soul if you know souls rules on twitter yep. they're just so good at talking about wellness in the space and really taking care of yourself in a real meaningful way, not like just selling you wellness products the way you see around the internet, but like really caring for people. And that game is called Burnout. Perhaps you've done too much. And it's just like, hey, why don't you, maybe not. I I could go on forever. So (laughs) I will send the link for the collection I have on itch that has all the CC games that I'm aware Mm -hmm. of. And you all can go explore just absolutely wonderful wonderful games yeah a lot of them are pay what you want to so you can uh you can 
get a fun game to play with your friends for not too much. Uh, okay, I got a question from some of my patrons, and uh, Matthew wanted to ask, what are some gaps that you've noticed in 5e, having played it and designed stuff for it? And then what are some areas that you think you would flesh it out if you had a bunch of time and, and energy to do it? His examples he kind of thought of were like systems for crafting and that kind of thing that it just doesn't do very well, but that a lot of people are interested in, right? Making their own items or armor or potions or whatever that it's just kind of uh, pretty uh, thin on. Right. So these days I'm not super interested in making 5e a better game when I could make my own game. That being said, if my players want something, I'll I'll come up with something for it. One one system I I did make for my like homebrew world, uh, which is where I I run a lot of one shots for for, like people in the community. Whenever I do a one shot, I just run it in my world because it's easier that way. I have a uh, spell creation system mm. that's pretty simple, but uh, can be. We played it out in game one time, and it was pretty fun because I think I'm. I want <laughs> basically as a homebrewer, I want my players to also homebrew. I guess I don't know. Uh, that's just something I'm interested in because, like, you have all these spells that are someone such and such's spell. Well, how do they make that spell? You know, Tensor's transformation, Natasha City's laughter, all this yeah. stuff. They had to have made the spell, right? So what I, I've done is, it's not super elegant, but it's it's easy to do. Basically, for each level of the spell, plus one, you got to make three successful DC 20 Arcana checks. And each check, take you have to spend three hours with someone who can help you craft the spell, like an actual mage who can who knows how to, to do these things. It has to be a spell you can, you can cast uh, that level of, you know. So there's there's a lot of like limitations there, but really it's just about if you spend three hours studying with someone who knows what they're doing and you roll an arcana check, if you reach a certain thing, you make progress on the spell. Mm. So a cantrip would take, I think it's, did I do three or did I do seven? I did something ridiculous, I think. I haven't like polished the numbers yet. Right. But anywhere between three and seven arcana checks for each level plus one. So a cantrip would be zero plus one. You would need three to seven ar- of these arcana checks. And in a lot of campaigns, a three-hour block is hard to come by, right. so you would be. You can adjust it to however you want. You can make it shorter. You can make it longer. Uh, if you have a long period of downtime, maybe like a two-week period of downtime, maybe someone can work on a spell during that time. And we had great role-play moments because I'm always like, okay, well, you got a 21 on your Arcana check. How are you researching this spell? So I had a player who was uh, playing a Battlesmith Artificer and wanted to do a spell that would allow him to cast like a Cloak of Lightning around his steel defender so that when people attacked it uh it could use its reaction and deal some lightning damage back mm. i was like oh that's really cool and that's totally doable for a third level artificer we can make it a low damage thing and that'll be great it'll be so good and so i had you know these role play moments of shocking himself and and, and all these cool fun scenes of how he's working on the spell with this wizard or with the sorcerer in the in the woods in a cabin in the woods and if you play it out with rp each time but actually your players will come up with some really cool scenes of like oh well i'm studying the electricity of this thing and then also you know sometimes when it's like oh i rolled i only rolled uh, uh an eight it's like oh well you, you shock yourself you take three lightning damage you know you can do you can make it a, a story thing that's really all i've done for creating systems that don't already exist in 5e if my players want to craft We'll do crafting. That's cool. But there's also just like a lot of people have made awesome stuff online. Mm-hmm. There's, for example, shout out to Abyssal Brews again, Campfire for travel, yep. running travel in the game. Makes it really straightforward, makes it really easy. And I've even used that template. I think it's similar to like the skill challenge template. I haven't played the, the previous editions, but 
from what I understand, it's similar to skill challenges right. or like where you have multiple roles or whatever uh, to accomplish something. Uh, I've done that for non-travel situations, but for things that I'm like, I don't want to run this in combat, but I also doesn't really, it's like, okay, you can just, you can just roll to see if you can find that information. Let's have it be a group thing where everybody's contributing to this specific goal. It, it ended up, ends up working pretty well too. There's that. They're coming up with Homestead soon. There's Adam Makes TTRPGs, which is, I think, gnome-made games. Yes, gnome-made games at Adam Makes TTRPG. Has a bunch of wonderful systems as well. There's a new Ancestry thing, I think, that just came out. And an orc had a little baby, yeah, too. Yeah, helping create your very own custom lineages kind of thing. Yeah, very cool That's stuff. super fun. Uh, yeah, so there's one thing is I'm always going to encourage people to make if you want to make something, you should make it. Just make it. Even if some it's been done before, you should make it. However, if you want a system that doesn't exist yet, why don't you take a look at some of the people in the community who have made the things? A lot of them are really, really, really cool and really effective. And there are some bonkers good game designers in the community that have made exactly what you're looking for. It just takes a little bit of digging. Yep. I guarantee it'll be faster to find them than to make it yourself. Yes. There's two sides of that that coin of like, Absolutely, make whatever you want. I'm always in favor of that. Also, support people in the community who have made, who have made cool stuff. I make this joke all the time with Abyssal Brewers. I'm like, Wizards of the Coast, who? Like, like eventually you're gonna make enough systems that it's just gonna be five E but better. You're just <laughs> essentially made, you know, because you 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 introduce enough mechanics and then you have a full game. Yep. So it's true. Yeah, you know, Wizards of the Coast owned by Hasbro. There's corporate stuff ruins a lot of things. So like, even if it is good game designers and stuff, and I'm sure there's wonderful writers that work for Wizards of the Coast and freelance for them. Corporate stuff always ruins it, and indie indie creators. That's you get the fresh, weird stuff, and that's what I really love to see. I want that really strange, just nonsense uh, sort of vibe. Like that's what I make all my five E subclasses because I'm like, I just want something really weird. I don't want it to be like they're. Fu- I, I do like a lot of the five E subclasses. Actually, I, I do enjoy them. Yeah. But I, I want sometimes I just want something really weird. It's always a joy to see in the game. So it is, and you know, humanity is weird. Like people are weird, and so it makes sense that we want our characters in games to reflect our own strangeness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned like just search and usually someone has made a cool system. Half the time when I'm thinking of a magical item or a monster or something to create, odds are someone out there has done it already. And so it's it's really just like going and finding it and using it in your own game that, that kind of makes it, I don't know, it's just a lot faster that way sometimes. So it totally is a good resource. This episode of How Not to DM is brought to you by a brand new Kickstarter from Icarus Games. Make learning 5th edition easier than ever with the class cheat sheets from Icarus Games now on Kickstarter. Keep track of all of your class abilities with simple language, easy to reference icons, and page references for the full rules. And never forget your options in combat thanks to a handy quick reference guide for actions in combat. Kickstarter is live until March 2nd. Sign up at icarus-games.co.uk slash kickstarter. And Homebrew Havoc. This year, the most creative minds from the world of tabletop role-playing have joined together to create an actual play fantasy adventure that is not to be missed. Explore a truly collaborative world come to life, only able to exist thanks to the imagination of a global community. You may have seen and heard actual play fantasy shows before, but never like this. Join us for Homebrew Havoc. Find its creator, Paul, on Twitter, at ampersanddd20. 
And you should go check out Paul's work editing videos as well. He's one of my patrons and he's got a ton of really cool stuff he works on. As always, links to all of this great content from all of these creators is available in my episode notes. And now, let's return to the show, starting up with a brand new minigame for Season 2. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! Welcome to Quickfire Chaos. This week, Lex and I are going to use some random generators online to create our very own Caltrop Core game to show off Lex's game design skills on the fly. Let's get rolling. All right, so we're going to start with the theme and the setting. So I just have this random website up, and I'm going to click, mm. and then you're just going to tell me when to stop, and whatever I stop on, we'll pick that theme and setting, okay? So I'm going to start now. Cool. Stop. Okay, this is good. Uh, theme is tragedy. Setting <laughs> is steampunk. Okay. So a steampunk tragedy. Next, do you have a D10? And if not, you can just pick a number between 1 and 10. I roll the 10. Okay, protect the peace. So we've got a steampunk tragedy, and the goal of the characters is to protect the peace, whatever that means. So, yeah, mm-hmm. what what are you thinking for this game? How, or how would you kind of flesh it out a little bit? So steampunk tragedy is, I feel like, not super weird. So that's pretty, that's good to work with. Right. We can make it weird. We can make it really we weird. We could like, make it weird. What kind of, okay, steampunk tragedy... I'm going to steal from my own setting. What if the world, it's like a post-apocalypse. Uh-huh. So that's, there's the tragedy and most of the land is flooded. So it's Ooh. all flooded. And the steampunk part is that the remnants of the world travel around on like hot air balloons. And they go from like, like big ones where there's just like, you know, maybe you have like, like Zeppelins, almost like an apartment. Yeah. yeah. You can even have like dozens of people or probably maybe you could have a really big where it's like hundreds of people that live on this floating airship. You could make it a survival game uh-huh. where you have to land on certain areas. There's not a lot of like growable food. Right, resources. So you have to land on these areas, mm-hmm. get resources, maybe figure out how to do farming on the top of your Zeppelin or something, you know, do some sort of greenhouse thing. That would be really cool. It could be all sorts like of like... the top like, half of it or yeah, whatever. Could, That'd be so cool. Yeah, you could have... Yeah, you could have and it'd be clear, you could look yes, into it. Yes. You could have oh, man. Um, the threat of like sky pirates because you always want to have sky pirates if you, if you can. Of course. If you can have sky pirates, you should have sky pirates. That's rule number one of game design, I think. Um, you heard it here then, first, folks. So, <laughs> so you you could do it on an individual level where you and the players are individuals on the ship. You could also go, I think Ironsworn does this, where it's like more of like a whole group, a whole like civilization or a whole tribe of people that you're role playing and working with, so that it, it could be on a civilization type of level. But I think tragedy is better felt like on an individual level. What do you think? Yeah. I what what came to my mind immediately was like some kind of like police or peacekeeping force, but the tragedy is that you're all trying to pay a debt because you are like part machines or something and so you owe the mm-hmm. government. But I love the the airship idea too. So trying to keep the peace Sky Pirates is good, so so maybe you're like a traveling entity that's supposed to keep the peace, 
or maybe there's yeah. infighting on the ship. There's like two factions or Ooh. three factions on the ship, and some of them say we need to be going, we need to fly this direction because there's like a safe haven there, and others are like, no, that's not real. We need to go this way. And you've got like the people who are like scientific or denying the science or religious, and you've yeah. got to like figure out a way to work between all of them. I really like that actually because that there's plenty of of steampunk adventures that would feed into this. Uh, I think actually. Uh, Bolaris by mm-hmm. Bogus Cheesecake is a is a is a great, wonderful, soft post-apocalypse setting for 5e. So go do that. I think the the faction idea actually is really cool. Mm-hmm. And maybe one of the factions is like we should become sky pirates. And some people like we should be stealing from other people. We should be doing whatever it takes to survive. And some people have this. And so maybe you could have mechanics. This one seems like if we're gonna do like the the intense close quarters RP style. I would do a token system instead of a stats system, right? Um, like trading because tokens, tokens kind of thing. You can do trading tokens. You can and you can have the tokens represent either physical resources, even like emotional or political capital, yep. almost like so. Like in Nighthawks, it's it, you have you you can gain tokens by dreaming of the future, of like daydreaming about like how life could be. You can get tokens by starting a, a conversation with another character. And then you can spend tokens to sort of bolster your, essentially what would be like health, but it's your isolation die and you want it to go up and not down basically. And so you can spend tokens to make that die tick up. And so I, I think for like those, those like intimate, almost somber themes of games, tokens, and I, I got this all from Wander Home. I re- big influences on me were Wander Home and Lumen, mm-hmm. which I read before. If you've read Lumen and read Caltrop, it should be very clear the influences from Spencer's SRD to mine. And then also Wander Home, which taught, if, if you want to do game design, just read Wander Home. That'll change your life, honestly. But it, Wander Home uses token system. There's no dice involved, so it's different from, from Caltrop, but what you can do as a means of a means of exchange, but like narrative exchange. It's not like, oh, these tokens, at least in Wander Home, tokens don't represent gold or anything. It's more like, oh, you gain a token because you did something the hard way instead of the easy way. And then you can spend the token to do something that affects the narrative. Uh-huh. So it's more of like narrative resources. And I think in this game you could use, it could be like when you do something selfless or it really depends on-, on Make a concession. What you or, want to say. Yeah. Yeah, and then you could gain tokens that way. Depends on what you want to say about tragedy, right? right. Because, so like in in the in the Caltrop Core SRD, I ask like, what's the core gameplay loop, and then what does this loop say about your values? Because it's gonna say something. If you gain tokens by making a concession or being selfless, you are rewarding a certain type of behavior, yep. right? And so you are clearly saying that these are good behaviors, and I'm encouraging these. You could also do it where tragedy you explore how tragedy makes us worse and you can maybe have a temptation thing where you know if you steal from someone you can gain tokens but you lose uh, you take a minus one moving forward when you deal with that group again right and a minus one in a d4 system is huge right that's like a minus five in d20 system so it really a lot of it depends and i don't know if everyone feels this way because i I, have not read a lot of game design stuff i just again i learned by doing and, and seeing what other people do but I do think this comes from when you write short stories and fiction, novels, poetry, the way a story ends, right, has a huge say on the values of the person, right? The, the end puts everything that you've said in the book into perspective. And whether or not you know it, you are communicating some sort of value or some sort of thesis 
in your game. I think Brandon Lee Mulligan has talked about this as well, where your values are going to show up in your games, yep. whether you like it or not. So it, it pays to be conscious of that, right? So how do you want to handle tragedy? What do you want to say about tragedy in this game? Yeah, I was thinking that there are a few games that my friend Fiona has played that were kind of like solo RPGs during the pandemic for her podcast, What Am I Rolling? And one comes to mind where you're the last survivor on an alien, on a ship and there's like this alien that's coming to eat you and basically it's almost impossible to win. So I almost wonder mm-hmm. like if the if the theme is tragedy, the beginning of the game is you describing the airship that just like crashes and burns and then you play Ooh. and that's just like everyone knows that that's how it's going to end up but everyone is still trying to cling desperately to hope just in case something goes wrong. Right, you know? what, what if the game is the, the airship is crashing and you're deciding what to do as the airship is crashing. Yeah, you could do that too. Yeah, so many options. <laughs> That's really cool. There's we literally there's like five different games yeah. here and they just come off of tragedy, steampunk. Yeah. Uh, you know, like there's so much you can do and even if someone has done a steampunk tragedy game which def- definitely exists, maybe they're not going to I don't think they'll probably have the same voice or the same thing to say as as you would mm-hmm. about tragedy and they haven't had your experiences and maybe you need to make a game about letting go maybe you need to make a game about holding on who knows who knows like that's what's so cool about it yeah I'll include those two websites that I used for anybody who's interested because the world needs more Caltrop core games so if you want to go and and click randomly and, and kind of figure out a game on your own, then please do. And uh, let Lex and I know, and we'll make sure to retweet sure. your game too. Tag me in anything culture core related. I never get tired of yeah. it. Okay. We're, we're down to the last two questions here, Lex. So first of all, what are your parting words to aspiring game designers? And then also to aspiring GMs, people who want to run games and you can kind of answer them in tandem or, or separately. It's up to you. Yeah, I would say if you're thinking about doing something, just try it. Give it a shot. I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, mental health stuff can impact that. And I, I, I try to address that in, in Caltrip Core SRD as well. But the best way to do something, or actually the only way to do something is to do it, right? You can prepare all day long, but preparing is not doing. Uh, you know, thinking about something is not doing. Research is not doing. Those are all important things, of course, of course. But at a certain point, you got to put pen to paper or your, foot, your feet to the pavement, whatever you want to say, and give it a try because the worst thing that you can imagine happening, even if it happens, it's like, oh, I made a bad game. Congrats. I've made lots of bad yeah. games and, you know, it's fine. Like, it really doesn't matter in the end. And at the end of the day, we're, we're playing games to have fun. We're making games to have fun. And maybe try to make the worst game you could possibly imagine as like a joke. And maybe that's that'll be fun for you. And then maybe that'll kind of take the pressure off of like, well, no matter what I make after this, it won't be as bad as the intentionally bad game that I made. <laughs> that is a great idea. Yeah. So I, I just, I really think, I, and I know this is really more of my temperament and my personality, but give it a shot. Just try. If it doesn't work, then it's totally okay. You're not a, a bad person or a bad game designer because you couldn't make that one idea work with Caltrip Core. Maybe use a different system. Maybe change the idea a little bit. Maybe ask someone for help. Maybe there's so many ways forward all the time. And I'm not even like one of those rah, rah, everything is great all the time. Just believe and you'll make it. I'm not one of those people, but try, just give it a shot. You'll probably be okay. And you might make something really, really cool. And the world can use 
more cool stuff, especially these days. So you, I believe in you. You can make a game. I feel like I'm the uh, chef in Ratatouille, the 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 chef Cousteau. Anyone where can it's cook. like anybody can yeah. cook. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm like anyone can make a game. And Castle Core is free, by the way. So don't pay any money unless you want to or can. Pay what you want. Seriously, download it for free and see if you could, if you get ideas from it, if you can make a game. I sincerely believe anyone can make a game. And like the proof is there. There's 108 games since just October. And most of those were in less than a week in, a, in December. Yep. Most of these people have never designed a game before in their life. You can do it. You just have to start. I love it. All right. Last question here is really just where can people find you online and where can people find your work and what's the best way to support your work? I am Tayanamaki RPG on Twitter and itch. I picked a really long name because I thought it was going to be the name of a show and it's a whole thing, but I'm here I am with the name and it's pretty cool. Uh, the best way to support me is just to, one of the ways actually is you can make a game with Couch Core, tag me in it, and we'll keep making new game designers. You can also buy my own games, Nighthawks. I, I try to make most of my stuff pay what you want, but for my like personal games that I put a lot of work into and that I play test and stuff, those have a, a price tag. So for $4.44, go grab Nighthawks. Uh, that would be great. Just retweet, follow all that stuff, all the good stuff. And Go forth and make cool stuff. I would love to see what you make with Culture Core or just not like anything really. Like I think people who make stuff are really cool. Me too. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Lex. And thanks for hosting that game jam and, and getting me uh, uh, to start making my game like I had been telling myself I was going to for months. And uh, yeah, thanks for, for just taking a little bit of time to impart some of your game designing wisdom upon all of us. Uh, aspiring game designers i'm in the same boat i've been a game designer for maybe six to eight months so you know we're in this together and we're learning and think about it if you could get all of your friends to be game designers then you have all these people to bounce ideas off of and get better you all listening and you Derek, we can all help each other become better game designers and just have a lot of fun because i think that playing is so underrated like adults we need play as well so yeah we do Make some weird stuff. I want to see your weirdest game possible. Yeah. Again, thanks, Lex. And really appreciate it. And can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thanks for having me. It's a, It's been a pleasure. It's great questions. And it's a good time. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now, it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Keith Amon, author of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. The main point of The Monsters Know What They're Doing is to say, here is the, how these monsters are going to fight. This is what they're going to do. These are the powers they're going to use and the circumstances under which they're going to use them. I have done this work for you. To hear more about The Monsters Know, Keith's system and philosophy for creating more interesting and immersive combat and roleplay, make sure to tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks like this. Next time you get a chance, share this episode with your friends and family around your table. Another great way to help boost the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. I appreciate all of you for helping me grow. My new intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. 
The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacad, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some nat 20s for me. <laughs>